Welcome to Bold Becoming Identity Retooled. This podcast is where we explore the landscape of the immensity of landmines that exist for people who've lost their sense of identity, who've been shaken to the core, and are relearning who they are now that a part of them is lost. It's stories of how people manage this struggle, regain their footing, and the gifts they've discovered along the way. Thanks for tuning in. Hey, Boog. Hey, Julie. What's up? Well, I am so excited to have you here on the Bold Becoming podcast. Well, it's nice to be here. I'd rather see you in person, but. But anyway, for the audience, I have Boog Dennis Heiberger. <laughs> well, so here in Lawrence, we know him as Boog. And in the state legislature, he is Dennis Heiberger. Or do they call you Boog over there too? I'm Boog in the state legislature. My my mother, my parent, my family calls me Dennis for the most part, but for everybody else, it's Boog. So, okay. So. And so he is our absolutely incredible. Oh, let me get this straight. So I live in Kansas. He's in Kansas, and he goes to Topeka, the capital, in the state House of Representatives, state legislature, House of Representatives. Yes, that's right. So he's, he's my representative for the district where, where we both live in Lawrence, Kansas. And I invited him. Well, first of all, why don't you, um, so, okay, wait. So the reason I invited you on the podcast of identity loss and overcoming forced identity transition is because you had an accident and, and it changed your body like forever. And so, so before we get into that story, why don't you just introduce yourself and, and however you want, because I, I think I pretty much mangled your introduction there. Well, I had, don't have anything prepared. I'm, again, I'm Boog Heiberger. I was born in Garnet, Kansas, about an hour south of here from Lawrence. Lived there, well, came up here to go to school in 1977, ended up staying. Uh, been involved in a lot of interesting projects over the years, met a lot of really cool people, and this is home. I uh, also, through some lack of judgment went to law school at one point and now I'm so. <laughs> so lack of judgment going to law school okay lack of judgment may become an ongoing theme here as we go through this but. okay well and that's that's very interesting a lot of people have their careers or pick their careers and then later realize what am I doing here and then they do these chosen identity shifts but let's jump into your story about having that accident. I, I don't remember actually any of the details. So, right. and then if you don't mind, I'll interrupt you along the way. To... I'll, I'll keep it brief. I was 15 years old. I was going out to a friend's house before basketball intramurals. It was wintertime back when it used to snow here. I saw a big snow drift inside the rug. One of my friends had stopped the car so I got out and jumped in. And, I thought that looked like fun. I went up and jumped in, except I hit my head and cracked my neck and couldn't move anymore. And 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 wait, wait, you're you faded out. So you jumped into this snow thing to have some fun, and, and you hit your head on what? Ground. And I broke my neck. But you hit your. I, I'm sorry. On on the ground. You know, the oh, you landed. The snow wasn't deep enough, or it was too soft. It didn't give much resistance, and. I didn't notice how the other person dove in it. Anyway, I broke my neck, couldn't move, uh, paralyzed from the neck down for two months uh, before I started getting any movement back. And 
four months after four months, I was able to walk out of PD Medical Center with crutches, and she's been made some progress after that, and then hit a peak, and then restless. Uh, just been dealing with that since then. So you were 15, like any young guy, out to have some fun, and your life changed on a dime. So can you just go into like back in those very beginning moments and at what point, so you were paralyzed. So they came and got you with an ambulance, right? Yeah, my friends put me in the car and took me to my friend's house, then the ambulance. Oh, no. Not a good idea, probably. But Not with neck and back injuries, right? My friend's father was a doctor, the town doctor, so. Uh, but yeah, his mother did a good job of lying to me reassuring me that it's just temporary it's going to go all good so i didn't freak out then so i, I think she knew better but uh, it wasn't it wasn't till uh, a day or two later that i realized it's probably going to be a long-term thing so, so not, you get you get to their house and then they get you to the hospital uh, somebody calls uh the hospital or doctor and there's ambulance comes and, and they send me up to kansas city PD medical center and they admitted you, and you stayed there for four months or so. Oh. Wow. And so do you have other siblings? A sister, yeah, I think. And so you were, wait, you were already in Lawrence? Wait, no, no, no you, were, you were living in? Garnett, little town about an hour south. Okay. And so you're, what was it like, you know, having your family come and visit you and, and at what point in that did you start to realize that there was a possibility that you actually weren't going to be, you know, back to normal? Well, I mean, they, they told us, told my folks I wasn't going to walk again, but they didn't buy it. I didn't either. Uh, so I, I never accepted the fact that I wasn't going to walk again. I, I thought my goal was to get back on the baseball team. Back on the baseball diamond in the upcoming summer season. Yeah. Uh, so uh, early on, I, I just decided I was going to beat it. And I had lots of help. My father drove up from Garnett every day for four months to move my, move my arms and legs to help keep them from getting stiff, like will happen if you just lay around in the hospital bed. I, I really think, in ret retrospect, that's what saved me. Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't accepted medical theory at the time, but I just the the the, the nerve action, the nerve simulation from moving the limbs, I think, helped regenerate the neural paths, made it possible for me to get better to the extent that I did. But it's just pretty incredible. And so, in the hospital, they said you weren't going to walk again and what were they what were they doing for you during those four months uh, a little bit of physical therapy they more focused on occupational therapy you know decided they wanted to make sure that i could do something after i got out in that wheelchair and it was self i mean it wasn't my dad i'm not sure i'd be walking today so he kind of just intuitively knew that body parts are supposed to keep moving and lying up in bed isn't whether you were going to walk again or not, lying up in bed. Right. Yeah. There, I had a hospital mates who hadn't been taken care of. They were like curled up in the fetal positions and were, couldn't move. I mean, they were, they, you know, 
and that, that's what what would happen when you don't keep your muscles moving. Yeah, your muscles just sort of contract, right? Wow. So what was that terrifying to be there watching oh, them? I don't recall ever being really scared. Just one night there was like a sad, saddish song on the radio and it was dark and cold and kind of got really sad once, but mostly no. Yeah. I don't know whether it's because I had lots of sport or whether I had this naive notion that it was all gonna be okay, but yeah, it wasn't. I don't remember it being awful, even though I said. So, is what do you do? Do you think part of that was being fifteen years old, or was that also part of your personality that you just overcame things even before that accident? You're a, a survivor, let's say. Or I think it's a good question. A little both, and right before that, I just sort of had a tr transition. You know, I'd been through a phase of trying to. Be like all the cool kids and fit in and then i realized that that's nonsense i didn't want to do it i just relaxed and started hanging out with people that i liked and so that if i if the accident had happened two or three months earlier i think i would have responded to it quite a bit differently how would you have responded to it well, i would have been more freaked out i couldn't be a cool kid anymore because you know crippled you know yeah and it would have been horrifying just to see people have people see me in the hospital like that yeah, I, I think it would have been a lot harder with my perception. So. Mm -hmm. yeah, and no. what what brought about that shift where you decided to give up being a cool kid? Is that it, that isn't that doesn't happen very often, does it? I don't know. I, I don't I haven't really discussed it with people. And if, um, I don't know why it happens. I don't know why I started you know down that path in the first place. Well, you know. I maybe know why I started down. I it's kind of a one of the smart kids in school, you know. So if you're a smart kid, you gotta prove that you're not a weirdo by being trying hard at sports and doing other things. So, you know, it maybe it may have been a continuation of that. But um but I, I think my basic personality was sort of leaning that way already. Patience, acceptance, um, stubbornness for sure. Mm -hmm. I interviewed another guy who's who was really smart, mm -hmm. but he but he wanted to be with the cool kids. And so then he had to like, you know, like you can't be in all the in both groups at the same time. And so then he was in the cool group, but then he wasn't cool enough to be in the cool group. But then by then he'd let his academics slip. So then he wasn't, um, you know, nerdy enough to be in the in the academic group. And so then he was sort of a little bit lost. Well, I, yeah, my path wasn't quite the same. I think once I decided to stop trying to impress other people, things sort of fell into place and things were working all right. It wasn't, I think my new peer group wasn't necessarily all, we were kind of nerdy, but there weren't all smart kids or some not the smart kids. We all liked each other and hung out and had a good time. Mm -hmm. Small high school, so there weren't that many different cliques to be part of. How many kids in your high school? Uh, there were 125 in my class, I think. Wow, yeah. Small Which town, Kansas. Yeah, yeah, I think that was the peak for the, I was kind of the peak of the baby boom. I think that's the biggest class we ever had. It's been going down ever since. I don't know what it is. It may be, you know, I think the territory may have expanded a little bit.
but I don't think that that many kids in that house right now. Mm -hmm. So you're in the hospital and your dad is showing up. They're saying you're not going to walk anymore. Well, they were saying that to my folks. They weren't saying it to me. Oh, they never said it to you. I don't recall that. So at what point did you hear that? Oh, I heard my folks at some point. I don't remember when really. I, I do know they were wanting us to look at buying wheelchair pretty early on. I don't think my folks were ready to, to go that way yet either. So. Mm -hmm. no, I mean, dad is a determined that it wasn't going to happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was a medical social worker for five years working with kids with um, severe disabilities and cerebral palsy and, you know, living in wheelchairs. And boy, those parents, they went to bat every second of every day for their kid. Whatever degree of getting better, they were, they were going for it. Well, that's, that's what it takes, I think. Without that, I'm not sure it happens. At least not no, yeah. Being in that field for so long. So you're in, so you're in the hospital, and then so they what was the why did they decide to discharge you at four months? What had you you had plateaued out because that's usually when they say okay, well you're not really going to get much better. So uh, there may have been some of that, but I wanted to get out. I mean, I could. I was at the point where I could walk with crutches. So and I think. Um, they were, you know, they had limited, limited space too. So I think part of it, I, we weren't, I don't recall that we were referred to any other rehab facility. Uh, I may, may not have been in that conversation. But, so I think the idea was I was going to heal just as well at home as I was at the hospital at that point. Or maybe better. But I, yeah, maybe that, yeah, but I don't know really. I was, yeah, like I said, I was 15 and I'm not. Sure, I was part of all the conversations. So. Right, right. So you get out, and you're you're kind of a. Can you describe that person that you were, sort of emotionally, psycho-emotionally, and well, and physically? Uh, like I said, I could walk with crutches. There's some difficulty. Yeah, I'm not sure how much of a different person I was. Uh, I, mean, I, I know that even this is identity, but. I'm not sure that the whole experience changed my identity really significantly, to be honest. I mean, if you, well, might be, as I'm getting older, that might kind of change this answer a little bit. But if you'd asked me five years ago if I'd change, go back and change it if I could, I'm not sure I'd say yes. Because, you know, I've had, I've had a good life. I'm still having a good life. I've had lots of great experiences by lots of great people uh, who knows what things were going to like if something would change if I attract by now I married my childhood sweetheart and ended up doing something I didn't want to in my old hometown right it's really hard to tell I mean, I, like I said and you know up until recently I mean, things are getting a little more difficult uh, but 10 years ago if you up even up to 10 years ago or so I just forget, you know, I mean, just be living my life and realize, oh, I'm a little bit physically challenged here. 
and it just, I mean, it just wasn't, I didn't think about it. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't part of my identity. Hmm. Uh, maybe there's a little more subconscious. Maybe that making sense. It does. And it's fascinating because some people can drown in their misery over their losses and other people can just pick up where they left off, you know, face reality straight on and do what you need to do. And it sounds like you chose the latter. Well, it certainly seems to be the more, the, the most fun option. Yeah, I didn't make it back the first day, so I would get that. But um, you what? Didn't make it back on. The, didn't make it back the first base on the baseball team. But, yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, it's what well, I mean. Yeah, people mention it, like, and they're so impressed. I can get up and get up every day and go out and struggle and fix this in the world. But what's the alternative? You know, I mean, it's certainly better than laying at home in bed in the hospital. Right. So for the for the audience, it's still a struggle for you to walk. Yeah, it's getting and it's getting a little harder. Yeah, as of about eight years ago, I had to go back to using a crutch, um, and that's you know, aging a little bit. And so I'm a little little anxious about the future, but we'll just take each you know take each day as it comes. So let me bring you back to the um. So it, this this show isn't only about identity loss, but it is a, it another big huge part is grief and loss. And so going back to that moment where you couldn't go back on the baseball team again, what was that like? How did that come about, and what did it feel like? You know, I my times of real sadness about loss have been pretty infrequent and shortly as you know whether i've just depressed at all or whether that's yeah i don't know i mean i maybe i should have been more done more grieving but i don't it's not in my record looking back on things it's not it doesn't seem like a big part of my experience mm -hmm. Well, everybody does grief differently and everybody has different needs for it. And each, each loss is connected to a whole bunch of other secondary losses. And those are all different. So you can have the same accident or body condition or whatever, but it impacts you differently because it, it produces different secondary losses than other people. And, um, and it produces secondary gains too. So talk about those because that's a new thing that people are um, starting to talk about this post-traumatic growth. What, what were some of the secondary gains? Well, I mean, I, I was a pretty shy kid when I was younger. Uh, and, you know, after I was injured, you know, people are, you go out in public, people are going to stare at you all the time, no matter what you do. So it's kind of actually kind of liberating. You know, if people are going to stare at me, you know, no matter what I did, I might as well do whatever I wanted. Does that make any sense? That totally makes sense. I just interviewed this grief specialist last week, and she talks about the grief card that 
and she deals with um, death and dying mainly. And so when, when you lose somebody and you're grieving, then it's this opportunity to do whatever you want because it's, it's, you're just, it, you just have permission to, to decide what you want, what you don't want. And it doesn't really, you, you sort of like lose the inhibitions that maybe you had previously. Yeah. I certainly see that with my mother after my father passed away. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, and so, yeah, I, I may be actually be having more fun now. <laughs> so you lost, so you lost your um, shyness, which was a, a, a good loss. And what other post, um, what other benefits did it have? Uh, I don't know, good question. It's hard to say. I mean, I think some people interact with me differently now. And that, well, I mean, I, people, I, I don't want to talk myself up here. Ray's not to be boastful, but a lot of people seem to be impressed that I can pile through this every day and keep doing things. So people, some people have a higher opinion of me now that I have this thing to deal with than they would if I didn't, I know, but I'm not, not sure that's benefit. So, so yeah, I, I politically, well, when I, should I go here? Sure. When I decided to run, well, I was, I have to back up. And going back to being uh, liberated and not caring what people think, uh, I got elect myself elected student body vice president here at KU in 1984 as a member of the costume party. At, at, you got elected where? Uh, student body vice president at the University of Kansas. Okay. Costume party. So we were doing street theater and we decided to make it a street theater event. So I, something I wouldn't have done in earlier probably. But yeah, so when I decided to run for real office the first time when I ran for city commission, I was told by a local politico that person with physical disability can't get elected here. Uh, substance doesn't sell. And the boob thing wasn't going to work either. <laughs> person was wrong on all three counts, I think. But uh, Wait, so what sub oh substance because your substance of the type of things you wanted to represent. Right, right. I was talking about issues rather than like like real stuff that needed to change. Right, right, exactly. And I think so again, I think he was wrong. This person was wrong in all three counts. But um, and how did that feel when somebody says because you have dis physical disabilities or any disability that you can't run for office? I mean, what I, what year was that? It was in nineteen eighty-three. No, no, okay. not, not eighty-three. That's, that would have been two two thousand three. Two thousand three, and they were saying that. Well, you know, politicos. Political people look at the world differently. I mean, they, it's just the, they're doing calculus about how to get people elected and they have, you know, they look around and try to see how people estimate how people perceive things. And this person perceives that as a liability. And I, I think it's, it hasn't been. Actually, it's maybe help, or might actually just from a purely practical 
pain load may be actually helpful. Because the, the, the whole reader's digest story angle to it. The whole what? Whole reader's digest story angle of it, you know, young man struggles against adversity and achieves his dreams anyway. You know. mm -hmm. The hero's story. Yeah, I don't know. Hero might be a little strong, but. Yeah. Oh, Boog, you are our hero. <laughs> You are the hero in Kansas in 2022. But anyway, we don't, we don't need to get off on a political rant. But nevertheless, so you ran for the statewide office. Or was it statewide or it was? My first run was local. It's from the city government. City for, for city. So at that, that was at that point when this person didn't think you would be a viable candidate because you wanted to deal with substance and you had physical disabilities. And what was the third one? A funny nickname. Oh, your nickname. Oh, yes, the name. Yeah, we, and he didn't even get into the purple car or the three-wheeled bicycle. So. <laughs> he didn't need to go that far. And so so you, you were angry at that? Maybe a little angry, but I, I thought he was wrong too. I mean. It, it probably inspired me to work a little harder. I think that that a lot of people actually adversity and and people saying that you can't do it makes them push even harder to do things to prove other people wrong. Yeah, true. And also, if you have a physical disability, you do have to be better at things for people to take you seriously at the same level. I mean, yeah, if you're it lowers it lowers people's expectations sometimes. So they look at you, and you're you're you can see that you have these physical differences, and so then they might not take you as seriously. Sort of like the gender card or the race card is that then you have to be actually better than right than the average person just to be taken seriously because you have these these things against you, these assumptions, yeah. right? So I'm in the rest, go to a restaurant with people and the waiter or waitress will look at the person next to you and ask, what would he like? You know, that sort of thing. Yeah, instead of talking, they, they assume that intellectually you've got something going on too. I try not to do things like start battling. But no, that, that happened a lot more when I was younger. That very, very rarely happens these days. Well, thank God times have changed a little bit and, and physical disabilities aren't don't have to be as hidden away as, as they have been throughout history, right? Yeah, I think that's part of it. And we'd like to think that part of it is, is living here in Lawrence, Kansas versus other places. Uh, maybe, I don't. I don't. As I, I mean, I, I still go back to the other part of Kansas, the other side of Kansas from time to time. I don't really see any big difference, to be honest. Mm -hmm. So maybe just a sign of, of times have changed and people are more, more aware of the diversity of humanity. Yeah, I, I, I think you may be right. I don't know for sure, but. For a person who like has just had a car accident or some kind of 
accident where they were, you know, they were okay when they left home and then the rest of their life is going to be significantly altered. What type of things like as a mentor, would you, would you want to let them know? Well, that's, I don't know. That's a tough one. I'm, I'm not sure that I can generalize from my experience, really. What I guess I do, my experience does lead me to believe that belief plays some role in healing. I guess I would encourage them to continue to believe that they can do what they want to do, you know, while trying to stay realistic at the same time. Uh, tough, tough line to walk, maybe, but. Um, yeah, how do you walk that line? Because, well, first, and, and also, just let's just point out to, to keep up, to keep hope alive, even when the medical professionals who's supposed to know all about this actually might not be saying that, that, that all these medical prognoses are not. So, so, so number one, that, and so then to, to keep your own hope while being realistic. So how do you balance that? And I, and, and I know that you know about this because you are in a tough position politically because you're in a very Republican state and you're a Democrat and yet you show up year after year keeping hope alive in knowing that you know things aren't necessarily all going to work out so how do you keep hope alive that is a really interesting analogy Julie. I hadn't thought about it like that well neither did I but I think it requires being able to hold two distinct concepts in your head at the same time and two distinct concepts meaning two different truths right two different potential paths or two potential potential outcomes um, maybe sort of like uh, schrodinger's cat you know just gotta not open the box are you familiar with the schrodinger's cat no quantum mechanics thought experiment to illustrate some of the weirdness of quantum mechanics. You know, this guy Schrodinger was a physicist and the idea is he had, he had this cat in a box and it was either, it could be either two states, it could be either, I think it's either alive or dead and you don't know until you open the box and it really doesn't, it doesn't, there isn't an answer until you open the box. I mean, before you, it hasn't happened until you open the box? Or, or it's, the two states both exist until you open the box. Until you, until you make the observation, both states are possibilities. Right. So maybe it's sort of something analogous to that. It's really out of my so. Well, I'm just, I'm thinking to um, this sort of bringing it back to keeping hope alive is that my, my um, parents, so I have two older brothers, one younger. So my oldest brother, once he got to be one year old, was deathly ill. And my parents had four funerals planned for him before he was 10 years old. And he didn't die. He's still alive. And so, but the doctors, the reason they had the funerals was because the doctors say he's going to die because you don't just like maybe make a funeral for your kid. And so the, it's, it's so 
that there's just these other things in life. Like we like to have so much certainty and we like to have the authorities sort of tell us how things are going to work and then have it work out that way. And isn't it true that that actually isn't how life works, that the authorities know some things, but there's all these other variables that are always there, some visible, some invisible. So you really don't, you, you can't actually predict outcomes. Well, medical science is inexact. And they can give you probabilities, not certainties. And so as long as, you know, almost everything's a probability curve, you know, and so as long as there's some, well, like, my dad was diagnosed with lung cancer, you know, at one point, stage four, small cell lung cancer. And so the prognosis was 95% chance he's going to die within six months. But mm -hmm. I guess my angle was, you know, dad, you see poor sods in this. And, you know, if there's 5%, 5% of people are going to beat this more than six months, we can be the 5%, don't you think? You know? Exactly. Wow. And, and he beat it? You know, that happened to one of my best friends in Berkeley. It was April 2013. And one day of that week, I got a call from her and she had just turned 65. And so she got Medicare. And so she went to the doctor. Wait. And so then later that week, and but she didn't tell me what happened when she went to the doctor. But then later that week, my son's godfather, who was like 34, anyway, somewhere under 35, um, called me from the emergency room at the county hospital saying he had stage four colon cancer. And I was like, they don't diagnose cancer in the emergency room. But when it's really bad, they diagnose cancer in the emergency room. And so then I told my friend and she said, oh, well, I didn't want to tell you this, Julie, because I haven't told my kids yet, but I have stage four lung cancer. So we got this 65-year-old woman, stage four inoperable lung cancer, and this 34-year-old with, you know, stage four colon cancer. And so obviously I think that she's going to be dead any minute and he's got a chance. This was April. By June that 34 year old young man was dead. And this was 2013 and now it's 2022. And that woman who was 65 when she got diagnosed has been cancer free for like three years. She keeps getting scanned, right? And so we never know. And so this whole thing about keeping hope alive is, is more powerful and I didn't used to think this way because my dad, my mom was a nurse. My dad taught high school biology and it's all this sciencey stuff, right? And, and that science is so exact. Although now that I'm grown up, I, you know, when my dad talks about science, it's obviously not exact at all. That's why they keep like experimenting and exploring. As they said when I was in engineering school, it's a probabilistic world. Yeah. So the whole thing about, um, forget where I was going with that, but it's just, it's just interesting that what, we th what, we th what we're taught and what we think, because we are taught to like listen to authority. We're, we're, that's pretty like 
well drilled into us and that other people are the ones that are that know the truth and are gonna make decisions and it sounds like you and your dad were like no we're in the driver's seat here yeah i think so yeah. I, mean, I think a good medical professional won't talk in certain possibilities probabilities what other types of if you're mentoring somebody who's who's in your shoes that you're in or something similar, what else would you advise for them? Uh, I sense of humor. I'll help you get through a lot of things that be pretty grim otherwise. That, I don't know. I, that's a good question. I, some, something I've really thought a lot about how I would mentor in a similar situation. I guess I do feel some responsibility to kids who are in this situation by doing what I'm doing and showing you, demonstrating that even if you have some physical challenges, you can still go out and have a good life. And that's, that's an important thing that are helpful to other people. So basically, to to read to adjust what quality of life is and adjust what your measurements are for a good life and that you can still have a good life even if you're ill you can still have a good life if you have a terminal illness you can still have a good life with physical limit limitations and to to be able to to shift those and, and so this i'm writing about this in my book that i'm writing is so enforced identity transition is we have to be measuring different things like when productivity and success and things like that in this in this sort of liminal stage where we're like transitioning from we're not who we were but we're not where we are we're, where we're going to be yet that we have to measure differently what in order to still feel like we're making progress because sometimes it doesn't feel like we're making progress and then even like, you know, sometimes you're never going to be, well, we never say never, but, you know, your, your body is different. And so therefore, you're just going to let go of certain parts of what you might have measured life with before. Like for me, growing up, my whole life was around being a star athlete. And then when I was 21, I had this little injury that wasn't even serious. And then then I never be, never could go back to um, competitive, sorry, competitive athletics. And so then I had to like go through this whole readjustment phase of, well, then where is my value and what, you know, what makes a good life when, when I don't have something that was such a central part of making my life be my life. Sounds like that athletics is a big part of your identity. Totally. And, and that's my story in the grief chapter that I'm writing right now, because I still have grief over it. Um, and it was, it was, I've had a lot of different losses, but that one was, was the most, the most painful. So, so that's kind of why also I, I wanted to talk to you because, you know, I don't know what you're like, you wanted to be on the baseball team. But, you know, just, you know, to, to have one body and then to have another body and you're never going to be like 
what you thought you were going to be with that being able to use your body the way you thought you were going to be able to use it i think it also made me again i'm not trying to blow my own horn here but maybe better than i would have been in some ways i i can often tell it's more easier easier when i was younger but i can tell when i meet people who had challenges when they were young it makes them different and, and more or less I, I could well i could see people who i can tell haven't had challenges from the other because they're often sometimes really shallow but when you've had to deal with something like this and then not just me i mean you've you've been through it and anybody who's had a little trauma when they're young i think and to get to muscle to get through it you it builds things inside you that you wouldn't have otherwise so now i i think yeah, I'm not a parent, so I don't not very expertise here, but I think trying to shelter kids from every possible trial is not the right way to go. Kind of letting kids out and let, let them have their challenges and it will make them stronger and better people. Right. Let them fail. Yeah, right. Hopefully not like me, but But yeah, again, that's one of the reasons I say that I'm not sure I would change this if I could. Mm -hmm. Well, I know when I, and I come up with all the interviews I do, and maybe that's the only people I talk to, because I'm sure there's others out there that I don't talk to, but the ones I talk to, they have, because they were forced into this change, whatever the catalyst was, they became a person that actually they would have never become otherwise. I can see that. And in a just a really like on, on a different level, because we're always growing, or at least we have the ability to grow. But these are more like quantum leaps than than the slow growth or the more organic growth without having sort of the impetus from something that forces you to to be different. Yeah, and this is a little off track, maybe, but I remember reading a, writings by a, a body alteration artist. He's somebody who voluntarily intentionally inflicts pain on himself. And his take is that well, comfort isn't much of an ambition. You know, be, wanting to be comfortable is kind of like wanting to be dead. And so I'm not, I wouldn't really encourage people to go actively seek out pain, but there were things in pain. Well, there's the whole thing of compare and contrast is that you can't act accurately evaluate and judge something unless you unless you compare it against something that's different. So I guess having a traumatic experience gives you something to compare with, I guess. There's a before and an after. There's this delineation yeah, it was kind of like when I was um, 17, I went and lived in, in Columbia, South America as a high school exchange student for a year. And I saw stuff, I saw such misery and suffering and such wealth and, and callousness. And, and, and then I came back and I was a different person because you, 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 don't, you can't unsee what you've seen. 
And so then it may, and then it changes your worldview and then it changes, you know, what you want to do in life and it changes how you respond to others. And, and it doesn't like people have bad things happen to them and then they go and do bad things to other people. Um, but also people have bad things that happen to, cause actually I wonder why I came, I grew up to be a nice person wanting to help people. Cause I was a very angry little girl beating up the boys cause of gender discrimination and they wouldn't let me play in their games and, and, and then fighting in my house and everything. So it's, it's interesting is that somehow our, our experiences can, can lead us to become a better person. And sometimes it can lead us to become a worse person. Yeah, that makes sense. But going back to Colombia, I mean, we seem happier. I mean, were the rich people happier than the poor people? The poor people. The poor people could enjoy the moment. They could, you could listen to some good music, you could put on some good music and they can dance and they can laugh with joy in the moment. And the rich people, it was all about, you know, maintaining their image right and being better than other people i'm just these are just projections this is the way i saw it but i was that's that was why that was one of the things that i can't unsee because i had some very poor cousins of the family that i lived with they weren't homeless poor but there was like about seven people living in this one little house that had two beds. And so the, the girl that was my age, it was my friend, the cousin, you know, she had one bed to herself. And then there was this big queen size bed in, in another room. And so the father and, and two or three older brothers, they worked night shift with their machetes. This was back in 1976 before all the guns protecting the they, they lived in this area with a bunch of car mechanics. So they, they did security for the car mechanic businesses at night. And so then the little brothers would sleep in the bed in the, at night. And then the, the adults would come in and the little boys would get up and go to school. And then the adults would go to bed. It was, it was, um, but I just, I saw that. And then the family of cousins that I lived with, they weren't wealthy. But I just, I saw these, these people who, who were living in poverty. They used, they used um, the cousins, they used newspapers for toilet paper, you know, because you don't need to spend money on toilet paper. You need to spend money on food and, toilet, and, and newspapers work fine. So yeah, it was, it, I, it was very interesting to see people in poverty who could enjoy life because you know we grow up or at least I grew up in actually a very wealthy town my parents weren't wealthy they bought before it like turned into a really wealthy place and we just think that we have to have all of these things before we can be happy and then I saw people they could be happy without all these things I mean, not every minute, and they had their own, you know, horrors and, sure. no, I, I don't you know, pain, but, but they could access joy in a way that it, it just, it was different. 
than the the rich parties I went to, or or I didn't go to that many rich parties. Well, in the second city I did, because I lived with a rich family. But um, I just remember, you know, there were a lot of rich people because my best friend in that first city was very, um, he, he lived in the rich neighborhood, one of the rich neighborhoods. And you could just tell who was rich and who isn't rich. And I just, I just remember just watching the rich people in downtown Medellin, this humongous second largest city, and just sort of like having these sneers and being mean to these homeless, disabled, elderly people on the street. I'm like, why do you, why do you have to be so mean to them? And, and it was just, it was just like, it was, it was really very, um, it just shifted my entire perception of, of humanity because I, I hadn't seen that kind of thing, even though, you know, we have it in the United States, I hadn't been exposed to it uh, at that level. Wealth doesn't appear to build character. <laughs> Wealth does not appear to build character. And certainly comfort doesn't necessarily make people happy. No, comfort does not make people happy. Not necessarily. I mean, Good, it, it, I mean, money and having stability and security is very important, but it's not the entire equation, especially once you get to a certain level, like, you know, you need your baseline level, but then above that baseline level, I've heard that it doesn't exponentially make people any happier at all. Or based on what I've read, maybe even the opposite. Right. Well, let's let's see. Is there anything else we should say about um, identity? Because we're running to the end of the hour, and we sort of got off on. I, I could go on forever about Colombia. It's I. Oh my God, that was like the most transformational year of my life. We'll have to do that over beers. Okay. Well, it might it may, might have to be a few beers. <laughs> but let me just ask you real real quick. What um what's your definition of courage? Courage. I don't know if I have a definition of courage. Uh, or maybe a form of insanity, but yeah, doing the right thing, even though there may be danger involved. I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't have a good uh, definition ready to pull out. Well, there is no right definition. There is no good definition. It's just like what comes to mind. And, and so to, to me, that sort of explains why you are who you are is you think of courage as doing the right thing even though it might be dangerous and your life work about you know this base basing your life work on this ethic of doing the right thing what you perceive as the right thing so that's very interesting because nobody's ever said that with you know i asked the question not in every interview but i like to ask it and what's your definition then? Well, my courage is deciding to do something and figuring and then figuring out how to do it. Because okay. I think a lot of people don't do things because they don't know how to do it. And basically they're they're afraid that they're not going to be able to do it. And then, but the way I've lived my life, partly because I never 
I didn't expect to get permission. Like I say, I had to beat people up to get my way because I was a girl. Um, and so I didn't necessarily expect, I didn't raise my hand to be picked. And I didn't, if, even if I raised my hand, I didn't expect approval. So I just decided what I was gonna do and figure out how to do it. And now in later years, now I realize that that to me is what people at least see in me is that I'm so courageous because people think like, like I'm like courageous and I didn't recognize that I was courageous. And then when I started thinking about it, I realized, well, I think it's because I just decide to do something and, and figure it out whether, because I want to do it, not because it's going to be easy or not because I'm ready to do it, stuff like that. So let me see if there's any last, let me just ask you one more thing. What's one belief that you adopted that has contributed to your success? Any kind of success? Um, I guess one thing, my dad was a pretty hardcore egalitarian and he told me that made it clear to me that nobody else is better than I was. But what's the flip side of that too is that you're not better than anybody else. And so I think treat, treating people through that lens, I think has helped me get where, where I am now. Wow. And I can see how that could have helped your your identity when you were, you know, went from being able-bodied to differently bodied. Can we say disabled? I mean, the, the disability community is so sick of all these different little ways of not saying disabled. <laughs> I don't care. Um, differently abled, though, that one really sticks in the Something about differently abled just seems like fuzzy. Seems like what? Sort of fuzzy nonsense. I mean, it's just, it, I, I, I don't mind harsher terms, harsher sounding terms, no, it's, but. So you actually don't like differently abled. I don't like differently abled. Because it's fuzzier. It doesn't. It's like it's trying to skirt the issue. But. Right. Or special needs. A special needs person. I'm, what the hell is that? <laughs> uh, We're all, we all have special needs. Uh, and then there's everybody's needs are different. Let's see. I forgot where we were going with that. Do you remember where we were going with that? Yeah. Oh, but uh, what I, oh, your dad was egalitarian. And so what I was thinking is that mindset and that belief or that value that he had, that could have contributed a lot to your not going through a huge identity crisis with no, this. I, I hadn't thought about it, but that, uh, that sounds plausible to me. Yeah, because you're still, you're, you're different now and you know, you can be different and you can be just as valuable. There's just different. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's not a therapy session to try to figure out how everything worked out. And I really appreciate you telling your story. And I'm so grateful that you survived, that you got to be walking again. But I'm just so, yeah, I'm so glad that you 
came came out of this and and made such a full life for yourself and well can, can i say one more thing something i say to people a lot who tell me things like that you know, is that we all have our challenges it's just minor it's a little more obvious than some but everybody's got things to struggle with and it may in fact may be easier to have them be visible to people and see what they are rather than the ones that we have inside that people can't see that they're not and and this was a whole nother topic that we could have gone into is visible versus invisible disabilities and people are so because i have invisible disability in my hand and um and you have visible disabilities and so people don't tell you how brave and how impressed they are that you struggle every day with your hand no they they're like why aren't you like working and overworking the way all the rest of the world is what's wrong with you you look fine to me <laughs> like i say maybe easier this way but. yeah well at least at least sort of i don't know it, yes the thing is and i think that you had said this is that we all have our struggles, whether they're visible or in, invisible. And that's what I like to, that's sort of the message that I like to give people is treat people like they do have burdens that they're carrying and treat, treat people with care because we all are carrying our, our burdens, whether they're visible or not. And also not to sort of, is patronize the word? I don't think that's the word. But because sometimes people with visible visible disabilities, like then they're they're treating you like you're not a, a competent adult, well, and so treat everybody sort of universal, universal relational rule is treat everybody as competent, treat everybody as having their own struggles, whether they're visible or not and and meet them where they're at again this is something i don't say to people but i say it happens in my head but i run into people who want to feel sorry for me and i don't say do you really think i'd want to change places with you but i don't say that but, but that's what you, that's what they say in their head that's what i say in my head I, that's what you say in your head yeah uh, yeah Okay, Dennis. Well, um, let's see. Let's promote your book. Ah. Tell people about your book and where they can find it. Let me grab a copy here. I wasn't prepared for this, Julie. Well, that's okay. We will do it anyway. All right. Okay. It's called Ugarama. Uh, it's a collection of articles, speeches, writings, uh, letters, etc. cetera, uh, over the last 37 years. You can get a copy uh, at Raven as soon as I get a few more printed because we're out of the first printing. And, or you can order them. Just type in Boogarama and it should take you to the website or you can order one directly from me. That's Raven fine. Anyway, so one of the things on my list for the next few days is to make, get the corrections made so we can print, print a second edition. So second edition. And so Boogarama, B-O-O-G-O-R-A-M-A. -O -O okay. By Boog Heinberger. Uh, yes. Boog Heinberger, yes. 
Heiberger, sorry. <laughs> I knew I was going to mess up on your name. And I will put that um, in writing in the show notes with a link to, um, to where they can find it. Yeah, if you need the link to the website, I can send it to you. Yes. Now I have a more incentive to go ahead and get the corrections made. Got it. Got to have external deadlines. Yes, I, I do. I don't know about you. But... I do too. It's, it's very hard to like do things without other people waiting on me. So this has been great. And thanks so much for joining me today, Boog. Well, I enjoyed it too. And really made me think a lot about a lot of things I had, don't think about every day. And I uh, appreciated that. And I look forward to seeing you in the real world. Did you get any kind of insights? Yeah, several. I mean, the, the one about uh, egalitarianism versus being able to, as a way of helping deal with the change. That was one, and then a couple others. Nice. Good. I'm glad I made it worth your time. Yes, it was. All right. Well, this you've been listening to Bold Becoming, and I'm Julie Brown. Hey there. The value that you got from this today, take it into your heart. Add value to it in your own life by putting it into practice and growing it to be part of your life, your daily habits, the takeaways that you got from this. Words and thoughts only take us so far. It's implementing on those words and thoughts that will change your life. Ideas are just ideas. Taking action on ideas is where growth happens and freedom emerges from growth. Freedom from our past invisible binding. We're here to grow and release ourselves from our past constraints. With awareness, intention, and through taking action on new choices, we evolve. In this process, we exalt our pain and suffering into wisdom that empowers us. We all have the ability to transform and become that person we yearn to be. If today's episode added value to your life, please share it with others. And make sure to subscribe to Bold Becoming Identity Retooled. And if you might, Take a minute right now and leave a review so that others can find out about this podcast. If you'd like to contact me for one-on-one coaching or to get on the wait list for my Tough Stories workshop, send me an email and we'll be in touch. Be sure to check out our free Facebook group of Bold Becomers. The link's in the show notes.